0: This week's parasha back home, of course, is Parashat Korach. And um, there are two characters who show up for the first time explicitly in Parashat Korach, but who have a storied and very difficult Midrashic career. And I want to talk about two things in the shiur. One of them is these guys and how we get them there. And more broadly, in the middle, to talk about the methodology of Midrash when it comes to character development. Because this is something that is often overlooked and yet really permeates a lot of our reading of Midrashim and our reading of many commentaries, certainly commentaries like Rashi, who, uh, who are likely to bring Midrashim to uh, to enlighten us and to, um, and to open up our understanding of Sukim. But I want to start with the story. Now, the, the first page is really uh, the first source. It's really just the story itself. and We don't need to read it all through. What is important to note is that uh, there are two separate rebellions going on. And, Robert, I think you might remember we talked about this a few years ago. There are two separate stories going on that may not have even happened at the same time. Uh, One of them is a rebellion led by Korach. And I'll just briefly comment on that because the real issue is one of timing. And timing deals with opportunity and motivation. It sounds like a crime show. But the timing of Korach's rebellion, uh, the Ibn Ezra dates it to the point where the Bechorot and the Leviim were swapped. Which means we're still at the foot of Harsinai. And uh, which puts us before Balotcha. And uh, whether the Mishkan has already been inaugurated or not is a good question. i Suggest that the Korach rebellion takes place before the dedication of the Mishkan for one simple reason. In the Korach story, Moshe tells Korach to get his 250 men to stand there with censers and incense. And he says Hashem will choose the one that's, that's, uh, that is the Kadosh as a way of confirming the selection of Aharon. Now, I got to ask you. After what happened to Nadav and Avihu, which everybody knew about because it was their job to mourn for them, what kind of idiot is going to stand there with a censor and say, Hey, God, do you choose me? And by the way, the story plays out exactly the same way. The 250 men get fried, just like Nadav and Avihu. So it doesn't make sense that this story would happen after the Nadav and Avihu piece because where are you going to find 250 people like that? So I think it happens earlier with the selection of Aharon and his sons as being the Kohanim, which took place at least a week before that, and they went into the Miloim. On the other hand, and this is more to our point, Datan and Aviram also capitalize on opportunity, and it seems to really be in location, which is after the decree of the 40 years. Because Datan and Aviram say, you have not brought us to Eretz Chalal Udvash and you're going to kill us in the desert, which fits perfectly with what just happened sequentially in the parasha. And indeed, it's possible that the Korach story really belongs somewhere in Parsha Shmini or earlier in Parashat Balotcha, but because the Datan and Aviram story happens now, the Korach story gets blended in. And why that's the case, we talked about in another shiur, but Datan and Aviram are mentioned numerous times as the leaders of this popular rebellion, somewhat popular rebellion, um, there is a third fellow who joins them who disappears immediately. His name is On Ben Pellet. They are all from the tribe of Ruven. But Datan and Aviram are the ones who consistently show up here as a team. And Datan and Aviram, at one particular point, get them nicknames. Not exactly nicknames, but descriptors. So when Hashem Tells Moshe to address the war the rebellious camps, he says to him, and take a look here in the highlighted text, but that's that's not colored. And he's talking about Aviram. These wicked men. Now, important to note that rarely in Tanakh is somebody called either a rasha or whatever the opposite might be, a chassid, a tzaddik, unclear. Normally, we don't identify someone that way. And uh, and we are left to sort of figure out, based on what happens to that person or how successful or failure they are, what the text judgment of them is. I'll give you two quick examples. Um, lot. What do we think about Lot? Do we like Lot or do we do not like Lot? Well, I'll be I'll jump the gun and tell you I don't like Lot. And the reason I don't like Lot is although he demonstrates some great hospitality and he's loyal to Avram along the way, et cetera, the last thing we hear about Lot is there he is in a cave in West Virginia with a bottle of Ripple and two pregnant daughters. This is a terrible story. And that's the last we hear of him, I believe, because the texts are trying to tell him he's a lout. By the way, I think the same could be said about Noach. I don't think Noach is a great hero. And that's the famous Midrash, B'dorotav. And Horaya, the last thing we see about Noah is he's drunk and naked and involved in some salacious behavior, and he's cursing his own kids. So we rarely get a descriptor of the person. And indeed, Sadiq in the case of Noach, likely means innocent, and innocent of whatever the rest of the generation was guilty of, as opposed to Sadiq the way we use it. But Datan and Aviram are called Anashim Rishayim, right? That's first of all. Second of all, when Datan and Aviram come out to challenge Moshe, we have the phrase Yatz'un Nitzavim. Now, Nitzav is a phrase that means standing tall. It's something that we find the first time it shows up, by the way, is when Avraham is standing over his guests. Nitzav Aleim. The second time we find it is when the ladder or ziggurat or whatever it is is is, st- is towering over Yaakov in the vision. Mutzav Artsa. And Nitzavim, of course, most famously, is when all of Am Yisrael is standing at attention in front of Moshe as he's issuing the final brit, uh before he dies and they're going to cross. Atem Nitzavim Hayom. So Nitzavim indicates some sort of stand of power and of majesty and of so almost military preparedness and here it's Datan and Aviram, Yatzu against Moshe. So they really are described in terrible terms. Now, the Midrash does something interesting with this, and that's what I'd like to explore. Datan and Aviram, by the way, I mentioned two more times in Tanakh. they mentioned once in the census in Pinchas, because in, descri- in listing the members of Shevet Ruvain, one of his sons is Eliav. And it goes out of its way, because typically they don't go to the fourth generation. Uvnei Eliav Numuel, Datan Vaviram. All right, so we're told about of Eliav's kids, and then we're told, who Datan Vaviram, that's the self-same Datan and Aviram, Kriye Haida, et cetera, et cetera, who started the rebellion. All right, along, connected again with the Korach story. So the Taner are famous, infamous, it doesn't even do it justice. They are well-known scoundrels. And the text goes out of its way to name them. And by the way, it's important to know because in, in another vein, who was the guy who collected uh, man on Shabbat? The answer is we don't know. Who is the Mekoshesh that we read about in Parshat Shlach? Or in chutzah, we're going to read in Parshat Shlach. We don't know. It might be the same guy, by the way. We don't know. Um, what did Slav Chad die of? That's the famous Midrash, but we don't know. And the Torah seems to go, seems to really attempt to put the, the, the best light on people in Tanakh, meaning in our people. And if they did something wrong, we kind of shash deal about it. So it's an anonymous person, not with Tatan and Aviram. They are in every post office. The pictures are there, most wanted, etc. Right. And in Tehillim, in Parak uh, Kuvav, which is one of the historiographic, or the really historiosophic, Prakim of Tehillim, and uh, Kuvhei Kuvav and Kuvzayin are, are a series together that talk through the history, and there's a lot about Yitzhak Mitzrayim in there. And in the middle of that Perek, like, Describing the rebellions, So the land opened up and swallowed up Datan and covered up the group of Aviram. Datan and Aviram now become kind of code words for bad guys and rebels. Which is actually about Korach's group that got burned up. But Datan and Aviram are mentioned explicitly here. So... There's one event that they're involved with, which is this rebellion against Moshe. I don't mean to soft sell it. It's a terrible event. But it's a single event in which they rile up people, and they get a lot of people to join them, and people are hanging out with them, and then Moshe faces off against them, and Hashem miraculously opens up the earth. We live in L.A. We know exactly what that looks like. We open up the earth, and Datan, Aviram, all in the family, everybody gets swallowed by the earth. The earth swallows them up, and they're finished. And, of course, everybody now understands that, uh, that this was a wrong-headed rebellion, and it was essentially rebellion against God. Okay. But what intrigues me is what then get, happens to Datana and Aviram in the world of the Midrash. So you take a look, for instance, here. We're going to start as early as we can, which is going to be at the beginning of Sefer Shmot. Now, the reason I say that is as follows. As we're going to see, Midrashic character development is. Um, is of a singular nature, which is bifurcated. I know that sounds a little bit confusing, I'll clarify. Uh, However, it's also anchored in a certain measure of reality. So I'll explain all those things. First of all, it's of a singular nature in that midrashic development of characters is caricaturistic. A character, a human being, is nuanced. We all know that. There is no person who's perfect, and there's no person who's absolutely all evil. Maybe. But there's none of the people in Tanakh. Everybody of them has redeeming qualities, and everybody of them has faults. Abraham has faults. Bilam has redeeming qualities, etc. And yet, when it comes to the midrashic development of these characters, almost always they are either—sorry to use antedated terms—and I'll probably get you know uh, some protest in front of my house for saying this, but they're either all white or all black. In using literary terms, you have. Um uh, Avraham, who even in the things that he does that are kind of questionable, some most of the Midrashim will paint him as being almost angelic. And you have Bilam, or Lavan, or Esav, and in later eras, Ishmael, only later Midrashic eras, Yishmael, uh, medieval, uh, as being pla- painted as just absolutely irredeemably evil. But that's not who they are on the text. Well, that's why I say it's singular bifurcated, meaning it's a singular mode of caricature, and it's bifurcated into either evil or good. Now, what's the reason for that? What is the Midrash trying to accomplish? The Midrash certainly is not attempting, nor does it, rarely does it attempt, I wouldn't say ever, rarely does it attempt to provide pshat. Chachamim were not parashanim. That was not their interest. The Chachamim of the Midrash, the Chachamim of the Mishnah and the Gemara, we're not parshanim. They were not exegetes. They were not trying to interpret the text. The text is what the text is. We understand the text. And now the midrashim are an opportunity to build lessons from the text. And one of the biggest lessons that we can get is role models. We have role models who are great, and we have characters who we should avoid like the plague. And you don't want to be anything like him. And the worst curse you could say to somebody would be you're like Lavan, you're like Haman, you're whatever. And so the Midrash then builds on that and builds these characters up in one, of the, one or the other directions. Often, this also has a, self, a somewhat comforting and instructive role for the direct audience of the Midrash. And the best example is, I think, is Asav. Because Asav in Sefer Breshit is kind of a, a wild guy. He's not a bad guy. He's just kind of wild kind of has a short temper and and real problem with uh, with delayed gratification, but that's Esav. Esav in the Midrash is presented like a Roman centurion. I mean, to the details. And the good reason for that, because here you are living in 4th, 5th century Eretz Yisrael, you're looking outside, and who are the people who are tormenting you? Esav! And suddenly, Chumash is alive. This became most pronounced... In the opposite direction, as far as, as as uh valor and nobility, in the really in the 12th and 13th centuries, when in anticipation of the next wave of crusades, the there were many fathers who took their sons to the Rhine River. There's lots of testimony about this, and sacrificed them. And when they sacrificed them, they saw themselves. They sacrificed them because. These kids were going to be taken by the crusaders, as they knew from the previous crusades. The parents would be killed, the mothers would be raped and killed, the fathers would be killed, and the kids would be taken and baptized. And the parents sometimes made the decision that it was preferable for them to kill their child, to have their child brought up as a Catholic. And many of them envisioned themselves as Abraham Avinu at the Akedah. Matter of fact, we have a lot of liturgy from that period, which is actually called Akedology. And and many of the slichot that in Ashkenaz as we say between Rosh and Kippur every day there's an added paragraph called an akedah, and that describes the akedah. But the reason that was so so powerful and it is because the akedah story was something they were living through. Some of the most painful midrashim read Spiegel's The Last Trial. You'll see some of the most painful midrashim we have about the akedah are from that period because they're not about the akedah; they're about the Rhine River and the Crusaders. And so. What Midrash effectively does is it brings these characters from historic characters who are buried to living characters. By the way, this is something that is prominent in our consciousness, and I would even say imagination. Because what names became very popular for secular Israelis at the beginning of the 20th century? Names like Gidon and Yehoshua and Shimshon, people that they saw in Tanakh as being heroic. And fighting the battle and, 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 uh, protecting the land. And that was the name that they, that they wanted to give to their children. And so we have a lot of people with that sort of name from that era. And so that's what happens to the Midrash. Back to our particular case, what happens to Datan and Aviram? So as I said, this phenomenon of caricaturization is, um, is nonetheless anchored in a certain measure of reality. So that Esav never becomes not Yitzchak's son, and Esav is not around at the time of Nimrod. You don't find Esav in the midrashim on the, uh, you know, uh, swimming in the water with Ogal HaBashan during the flood. He's anchored in his time period. The reason I'm mentioning that is because Datan and Aviram cannot show up in Breshit because they're not alive. The earliest point they can show up is in Egypt because they're part of the generation that left. So that means that at the time that the Egyptian story opens up for us, they're already adults. Okay, and that's where they first show up in the Midrash. Moshe Rabbeinu, at the beginning of his career, is taken in at whatever age, seven, eight, whatever it is, he's taken into the palace, and he is, I guess Spielberg calls him the prince of Egypt, I don't know, but um, he is in the palace, and he goes out one day, to see what's happening with his brethren. And by the way, at that point, you don't know what brethren means. It means his Egyptian brothers or his Hebrew brothers. We find out, thank God, that it's Hebrew brothers and he kills the Egyptian, right? But Look at source four. There's two Hebrew men fighting. So he speaks to one of them who the text identifies as a Rasha. Now again... True to the text, it doesn't give us a name because we're not going to call somebody a Rasha. But he calls this guy a Rasha, but we don't know who it is. And by the way, we learn an important halacha from here. Lama tekeriach means why would you hit him? Which means the guy's got his hand raised. And from there we learn a halacha. Hamirim Somebody who lifts up his hand to threaten violence is called a Rasha, and halachically is pasul laidut. Not even acting with violence, but using violence as a threat is already Rishut. Okay. Now, who are these guys? We don't know. And of course, you know, they turn to Moshe and say, oh, big shot, who are you? You want to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? Moshe hears about it. Moshe hears that Paro heard. Paro puts a contract out on Moshe. Moshe runs away, and of course, the rest is history. What does the Midrash say? This is in Bavli and in Darim, but it's another place in other places of the Midrash. Enan Aviram And so, even though the word Nitzim doesn't show up in our story, we have a tradition that the Nurd Nitzim, which is you have here, fighting with each other. That's Datan and Aviram. So who are these two guys? Datan and Aviram, fighting with each other. All right, and the Midrash further goes. Shma Paro, how did Paro hear about it? Now this is shmot Rabbah, it's a very late Midrash. She'amdu datan Aviram vil How did Paro hear about it? Datan and Aviram came in bad mouth Moshe to the authorities. Now by the way, Midrashically, this really hits home to a 4th century or 5th century or later audience in Byzantine, because, in Byzantium, because Jews, from time to time, are informing on other Jews. And these guys are informing to the authorities about Moshe. And so Parah wants to kill him, Moshe has to run away. Okay, now, a little later on, Moshe ran away, Moshe marries Moshe Moshe's at the Sna. Hashem gives him the command, and then um, Moshe appears to him and says, you can go back to Yitzchim, because all the people who want to kill you are dead. Simple shot is that's Paro. Paro died, and therefore there's an automatic amnesty on anybody who was uh, had a a, a a contract on his head, bounty on his head, and he can save. But the midrash is who's that? The Khimeeti you? Did they die? Who are the people who wanted to kill Moshe? But they're not dead. The answer is that they they became impoverished. And somebody who's impoverished is like dead, like a blind man, like a mitsurah, like somebody without children. Those the famous midrash about that. Okay, so suddenly the people who want to kill Moshe are Dathan and Aviram. We're not done. Moshe then comes to Mitzrayim, and Moshe does all of the signs, and then Bnei Israel get very excited, and they come into Paro, march into Paro, and say, "We want to go out three day festival." And Paro says, "Are you out of your mind? No way." And instead, I'm going to make the work harder. And now Moshe faces his first real test of leadership. Not, not leadership. His first test of leadership of Bnei Yisrael, which is a way harder thing than anybody else. And what happens is some of the officers come and challenge Moshe. And they say, what did you do? You made things worse. Worse." Now take a look at it. They bumped into Moshe and Aaron, and they're standing Waiting, like Moshe and Aron are coming out of Paro, and they're standing there waiting for them. Nitzavim, remember that word. Paro. God should judge between us. You have made things terrible for us. You made things worse. What does the midrash say? Look at par- in verse source ten. Datan v'aviram. That's Nitzavim. And so, notice what happens. Datan and Aviram actively in the text only do what they do in the desert. After the decree of the forty years, after we left Har Sinai, and yet we backdate their rebelliousness, their brazenness, their awful um, um, instigation of rebellion against Moshe back to the beginning of Moshe's career. It's as if to say that Moshe comes along with Tatan and the whole way through. Well, we're not done. We get to the Midbar. We get out of out of uh, out of Egypt. We get to the Midbar. And Moshe says to everybody, "What's the? There's going to be man, and don't leave any man over. Every day there's going to be man, and it's a test essentially of faith. It seems." The Midrash is picking up because it could have said, They left it over for the morning. Why well, say anashim? Okay, who are the anashim? Look at the Midrash. Let me go. So it's almost like every time we have somebody who's a fly in the ointment in the story, if there's any way we can pin it on Datan and Aviram, it's Datan and Aviram. Right. And again, we understand what the Midrash is doing. The Midrash is building up a case over the course of of, lots of Midrashim that Datan and Aviram are an image. They become a watchword for trouble. And it's almost as if to say that you cannot have a great leader like Moshe without a Datan and Aviram there. Every hero has to have a villain with him, which is, by the way, a staple in a lot of literature. But the Midrash goes further. Because remember, Datan and Aviram in the text show up evidently right after the decree related to what we call the Huh? Why did that decree happen? Because the 10 guys, or however many guys, said, there's monsters, and lions, and tigers, and bears, oh my, etc. And everybody said, okay, we're done with Moshe, we're going to appoint another leader, and we're going back to Egypt. And that's when all God's, God's fury let out, he wanted to kill everybody, Moshe pled with that. Pled with him, and the, the, the compromise was, okay, they can die in the desert, the kids will go in. Now, by the way, none of our key words are there, not Anashim, not Mishraim, not Nitzavim, not Nitzim. One man said to his fellow, Let's appoint the head and go back. What does the Tadchoma here say? Datan so suddenly we've expanded it. We don't even need a textual link anymore. Every time that there's two guys making trouble, it's Tad and Aviram. And you understand how, how skillfully the Midrash is very quietly weaving this image in that these guys, their rebellion is nothing new to us. We're not surprised to find them rebelling against Moshe when we see them actually rebelling. They've been doing this from day one. They've been in trouble from day one. Okay, and now you see a sort of a, a composite midrash again in Shmot Rabba. And again, the first half of Shmot Rabba is a very, very late midrash. <speaking in Hebrew> The only way Paro heard about what Moshe did, killing an Egyptian, was because of Hebrews. Why are they called Nitzim fighters? Because that's how they're going to end up. And that's a very instructive statement. We recognize who they are because of how they end up. Or to put it into more accurate terms, we identify them as being these scoundrels early on because of what we hear about them later on. And then look, they're the ones who told Paro about Moshe killing the Egyptian. They're the ones who left them on over. They're the ones who started the rebellion of the Meraglin. And as if that were not enough, they're the ones who at, at Yamsuf were the ones who said, oh, why do you bring us out to the desert to die, let's go back. They're always the ones making trouble. Now again, we only have one story with them actually in it. But notice what the Midrash is doing. And um, this Midrash, this whole Midrashic direction that I'm suggesting is something that's actually not new. It's something that starts in Sefer Breshit with another pair, a pair from an earlier generation. But I'm going to show you how they're linked together. And that pair is Shimon and Levi. Sorry, Shimon, but it is what it is. All right. Where does Shimon and Levi, Levi actually start? This is in, the, in Shem. All right. After the brothers had convinced the people of or had convinced Shem to convince his people to do a mass breed milah, which crazily enough, they do. And the third day of the milah, which evidently is the greatest pain and the whole male population of Shem, however small it was is all uh, rendered essentially vulnerable. So we name them Shinon Valevi and we identify them as Achei Dina, which of course shows is Reuven, so is Yehuda, so is Yitzchakar, so is Vulun, and at least from a paternal perspective, so are the rest of them. But and Levi, Achei Dina, keep that in mind. Ish and they come and they kill everybody. Now, what does Yaakov say to them on his deathbed? Remember, in the story of Shem, Yaakov castigates them on tactical reasons. You put us in trouble. In on his deathbed, he castigates Shimon and Levi, and more than more than that, he removes them from potential leadership on ethical reasons. Shimon and Levi, Achim, and again that word, Achim. Clay Hamas Their weapons are weapons of violence, and I don't want to be associated with them, and they're cursed, etc. Now. Notice Acheidina and Achim. Now watch what happens. When Yosef, earlier, when Yosef shows up in Dotan, and the brothers are standing around, We, have, by the way, we have no idea how many brothers there are there. I think there's four, but there's certainly no more than six, right, that are there. In other words, it's Ruva and Shimon Levi, Yehuda are certainly there. Maybe Yisachar and Zulu. right? But, um... Here comes the dreamer, let's throw him in the pit, let's see what happened to him. Who's Ishal Achiev? So what does the Midrash famously say? Shimon and Levi. Shimon and Levi. Right, that's Ishal Lachiv. And um, and famous thing that they were Achim when it came to helping Dina, they weren't Achim, they were the opposite. They acted anti-fraternally when it came to Yosef. Um so we have a model, not only in the text, but more critically in the Midrash, of taking unique descriptors for a pair of people, and then when you find those descriptors without names, applying to those people. Who are Isha Lachiv who could throw Yosef in the pit? Shimon <speaking in> Alevi, <Hebrew> Achaidina Isha Lachiv. We then do the same thing with Daltan and Aviram. Every time it says Anashim and Rishaim and Nitzavim and Nitzim, is Daltan and Aviram. But there's more to it than that. Please take a look at the last example of Daltan and Aviram we associate in the text. It's at the Miraglim. And that is, what do they say? Amru Ish Alachim. Look at source 13. Remember I pointed out, Ish Alachim is not something we find in the story of Daltan and Aviram. We find Anashim, and Rishraim and Nitzavim, and Nitzim, but not Yishalachiv. Vayimru Yishalachiv, you'd almost be tempted to say, Shimon's talking to Levi, which of course is crazy, because we're in the Midbar. So I think that what's happened is that the Midrash has taken Shimon and Levi, and then morphed them into Natan and Aviram. Shimon Levi, who Yaakov castigates and removes from leadership and says, "I do not want to be associated with you," then morph in the later generation into the Datan and Aviram, and we find every time that in that generation there's troublemakers. It's Datan and Aviram, these two brothers who are causing stirring up trouble, and um, and it's a way of sort of creating a continuity of that caricature in the picture of Am Yisrael. What we've done over the course of the last half hour or so is to take a look, starting with the story of Datan and Aviram in this week's parsha, and noting that Datan and Aviram are called out as Rishayim, which you generally don't find in Tanakh. Uh, the only place, by the way, as an exception, the only place you find that is typically in the biography of kings. When kings die, we're told he ruled this long, and typically, Vayas tarabe once in a while, Vayas hayasharbe it's an exception. Yeah, usually he's a bad guy. But with other people, you don't hear that really, right? So you have to figure it out from other things. Here, it's explicit, Shaiim, right? Very clear. And then we find out that they're mentioned later in, in the census. Their death is mentioned, is singled out, and of course, in this Parakintilim, they're sing, they're mentioned again. And then we find that the midrash then pushes them back into the be- very beginning of the story as being the troublemakers to Moshe. And again, if the the reason for this is, again, to bring the characters of Tanakh into um, into our lives as real characters that we can identify. Every society has its heroes and has its villains. Every society has its brave Avrahams. And every society has its nefarious Lavans and its violent Esavs and its scheming Hamans. And it's much easier for us to not only gain some measure of hope and some measure of perhaps closure in looking at the characters in our own lives and associating them with the characters of Tanakh but it keeps Tanakh alive suddenly when I'm reading the story of the Akedah or I'm reading the story of Yaakov's face off against Lavan, it's not Yaakov and Lavan anymore it's Am Yisrael and the United Nations or whoever we want to point as the current Lavan, when I find Mordechai facing off against Taman that's easy that's the state of Israel and the current Iran. That's an easy one. I mean, for some, if, if, if you want to take it that direction. So the Midrash accomplishes simultaneously two things that are of profound significance for the consciousness of Am Yisrael. It gives us both an anchor in our own lives to see characters in the light of historic characters, which also, of course, gives us a measure not only of hope, but of design. But it also brings the Tanakh to life, which is a really? vital educational interest and, and community need that we have that the Midrash successfully does. And so that's Tatan and Aviram. Next week we'll talk about perhaps some nicer guys.